you uh, see what the text is, it's Romans 8, verses 1 through 27. And if you know Romans 8, some of you may be saying, who stops at 27? Why, why would anyone stop there? And, uh, and that's, that would be a, a great question, actually. And we're going to look at those 27 verses. But what I want to do is to, for the scripture reading, to begin with verse 28 and show you what those verses are leading up to. So let me ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be. Let's bow together. Lord, we would ask now in these uh, next few moments that you would open up your word. We are, we are uh, talking about your Holy Spirit, but what we need is your Holy Spirit to, to teach us, to challenge us, to comfort us, to give us peace, to do his work in our lives and so we would ask for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Be seated. As was mentioned, uh, we are in a series on the Apostles' Creed. Today, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, that is the, the third I believe that we see in the Apostles' Creed. Now, all of it, obviously, is what we believe, but, but there are, are three that are uh, specifically begin with that statement, and the first one is, I believe in God the Father Almighty. The second one is, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, and the third one is, I believe in the Holy Spirit. So obviously, in uh, this version of the Apostles' Creed, the point being that uh, it begins with the Trinity, with God himself, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then these other doctrines flow from that. Now, as I said, we're, we're going to be using Romans 8. When I preached through Romans back in 2016, uh, the, the portion that I am speaking on today, these 27 verses, uh, that was five sermons. Now, it's okay. We, uh, I'm, I'm not going to 
preach those. We're not going to be here till 3.30 this afternoon uh, going through this passage. But I wanted to say that right up front, lest any of you think that I think I can really cover this in one message. Now, now here's what we're going to do, though, and it's deliberate. I don't know of any place in the Scripture that talks more about the Spirit, gives us more of His characteristics in one place than this portion of, of Romans 8. And so what we're going to do is we're not going to thoroughly talk about all of them. Some of them I'm going to barely mention, but it's like we're going to go up on an airplane and take the 30,000-foot view of this so that we get the, the overview and hopefully grasp the importance of the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the third person of the Trinity. So the first thing I want to say before we even get into Romans 8, and, and this, is, uh, this is essential for people to grasp, is that from a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective, the Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. Okay? Now, maybe you never even thought about that, but there are those that, that act like that when we talk about the Holy Spirit, that uh, um, it, it's, it's just some kind of a, an impersonal force. It is far from impersonal. He is referred to as a he. There are personality traits that we see throughout the New Testament. And so when you, when you think of the Holy Spirit, always think of him as the third person of the Trinity. Now remember this, and we talked about this in previous sermons. You have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Those three are one the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So he, he, he's not the, the low man on the totem pole, the God totem pole. Now in his function, in his function, not in his substance, not in his being, not in his power, but in his function, he does uh, the will of the Father and the Son. And we're going to see the, the many things that he is, uh, he is doing now. So that's, that's the one side of it. That's his, his function. But he is no less powerful than God the Father or God the Son. The other thing is this, uh, and then we're going to jump into Romans 8, is that uh, some people will say, well, we're, you, nobody talks about the Holy Spirit enough. Well, if we, if we properly reflect the New Testament, the Holy Spirit doesn't talk about himself. He's not the focus. In fact, everything the Holy Spirit does is he points to Christ. That's always the emphasis. And so if you are around some group that, that all they do is talk about the Holy Spirit and, and it's not wrong to talk about him and even pray to him, 
Not all the time, but it's okay. He's God. But if, if that's the only focus, then it's out of focus. That's not what the Holy Spirit wanted. It's not what God the Father wanted. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to make Jesus more famous. Okay? So let's, uh, let's take a look. I'm going to break this, uh, uh, these 27 verses down into four sections. We're not even going to look at every verse, but uh, we have to look certainly where it begins in verse 1. And we're going to look at first at our salvation and sanctification. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So all of Romans 1 through 7 have been leading up to this that says there is therefore, therefore meaning because of everything that we have said up, um, up until now, there's no condemnation. And for that we rejoice, we celebrate because that's talking about our salvation. If we are in Christ, if we are trusting in Christ alone for our eternal life, there is not, there will never be condemnation for us. And we talked, if you weren't here last week, we talked about what that judgment day is going to look like because of, uh, in the Apostles' Creed, it's, it's spoken of. Go back and listen to that if that's fuzzy in your, in your mind. But the point is, there is no condemnation. And how is that? He goes on then to explain why, you know, what the Holy Spirit has to do with that and what it means that there's no condemnation. And it, it means that we're liberated from sin and death. Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life... And by the way, what a beautiful phrase for the Holy Spirit. The spirit of life. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So if we were characterizing uh, Romans 8, the theme of this chapter would have to be the Holy Spirit. Up until this point in the, in the book of Romans... Uh, the Holy Spirit has only been mentioned twice and only in passing. In Romans 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 20 times. That's why we're looking at Romans 8 today. It's no surprise since Paul really continues to talk about our, our sanctification and you can't consider sanctification without the Holy Spirit. Now, what is sanctification? I, don't worry, I'm not going to lose you here. It's a theological term. Let me give you the simplest definition, I believe, for that term. Sanctification is simply us growing to be more like Jesus. We're justified, there's justification, that's our salvation. But, but then, from that point on, we are in a process. Our justification is a boom, it's a one-time thing. 
but sanctification is a process and it begins when, when we come to Christ, when he gives us a new heart, we're regenerated and it goes on all of our life until either Jesus comes back or we die and, and we're glorified, okay? And sanctification, it's not just a, you know, we immediately become like Jesus. It's, it's kind, of a, kind of like this. And you know about that, right? Some of you say, yeah, that's me. Okay, yeah, well, there I am again. Okay, but, but here's what you need to remember with the, when it seems like maybe there's a dip and you're not growing as much is understand here's the goal and even if, if you don't feel like you're growing as much, you're ultimately, you're moving toward that goal, okay? So sometimes we're, you know, we're, we're I think, too hard on ourselves in this way. If you look at any one day or even a few days or a week and you say, man, after today, I don't even know if I'm a Christian, <laughs> And some of those around you might say, yeah, I don't know either, you know. <laughs> you might have that, that feeling. Well, you can't look at just any one day. You've got to look at a bigger slice. And so you've got to say things to yourself when you're in, in those things because Satan would love to discourage you with that. So you've got to say things to yourself like, okay, but where, where was I a year ago? Where was I five years ago? And if then you still see no progress, then it is important that we re-examine, do I even know Christ? But it's more likely that when you look at, at bigger chunks, you're going to say, okay, well, I'm, I'm not where I ought to be, but I'm not where I was either. And that's, that's the process of sanctification, and that's what the Holy Spirit, this spirit of life, set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so if you remember in, in Romans, in, in chapter 6, Paul had already stated that we're no longer slaves to, to sin and therefore death. So as we consider that, here's what that means. If you're in Christ, before Christ, you are a slave to that. You don't have any choice. You are going to sin. But Paul is saying, look, if you're in Christ, you don't have to sin anymore. And if you're saying, I, have, I just have to sin, it's just my old self, it just keeps coming out, you're, you're fooling yourself foolishly because he says, look, no, because of what Jesus did, because of what the Holy Spirit has done, you don't have to sin anymore. That's not your identity. If you sin, it's because you're choosing to sin. And what you are doing is you are going against your own identity. So, uh, he says then in verse 3, for 
God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. That's the work of Jesus. And then verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So he says that it's the Holy Spirit that gives us strength to, uh, to uh, fulfill obedience because of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see why. Uh, how, do we, how do we tap in to that? Look down uh, further, down in verse uh, 6. He imparts life and peace. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. He promises a, a, a peace. Now, that doesn't mean everything in your life is going to be peaceful. But here's what it does mean. That whatever is going on in your life, if you are in Christ, that means you have the Holy Spirit and that means you have peace with God, regardless of what else is going on in your life. Romans 5.1, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, so how's that happen with the Holy Spirit? How does he empower us? Well, because he dwells in us. Jump down to verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, this is an amazing uh, concept and statement. Paul is saying that uh, the Holy Spirit was there in the tomb of Jesus after he was crucified, dead, and buried. Did you ever think of that? The Holy Spirit was there. And then he's saying that same Holy Spirit that was there at the resurrection of Jesus, that same Spirit dwells inside of you. So here's, here's the point. As resurrected as Jesus is, you will be because you have that same Holy Spirit. Now, when are we going to get our resurrection bodies? I'm going to answer that in three weeks. Uh, <laughs> when we get... To I believe in the, in the resurrection. We will talk about that. But look uh, next at our identity and status, verse, uh, verses 12 through 17. He enables us to put to death our sinful inclination. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. And he convinces us we belong to the Father. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Now, here's where he's talking about our identity. 
see, uh, it, even Christians have the tendency, and many times they're doing this just out of humility, to say, well, I'm just a sinner in terms of addressing that I sin. I'm just a sinner or a sinner saved by grace. And, and I get it. I understand that you're thinking in terms of I don't want to brag or anything and, uh, you know, I'm a sinner. But theologically, that's not exactly accurate. That's not your identity. If you go around saying and declaring all the time, well, I'm just a sinner, then what are you going to do? Well, then when you sin, you say, well, that's what I am. I'm just a sinner. It's what sinners do. They sin. But instead, he says, here's your identity. You're a child of the living God. That's your identity. You know I like to use that term. It's one of my favorites. Because that should always be our identity. And, and so what that says is if we say, yes, I'm a child of the living God, then when we choose to sin, we have to recognize, oh, wait a minute, I am I'm going against my identity. You get it? So your identity is in Christ. It's not in your behavior. And that will make a difference if we really begin to grasp that. That being a child of a uh, uh, the living God, it's not passive, it's not assumed. You, you younger folks, if you, you can't, and I thought this early in my life, I thought I was a, a Christian because my parents were Christians. I didn't, I didn't know the difference. It doesn't work that way. It's not passive, it's not assumed. It's individual with the Lord. So why is that so important? Because understanding our identity will have a profound effect on how we act. A child acts entirely different from a slave. And a child in a family acts entirely different from an orphan who happens to be around a family. And so the scripture is, is saying here to us, look, you're not a slave and you're not an orphan. You belong to him. And that's the difference. And that means we have freedom and not bondage. Verse 15, the first part. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you, are, you live in fear again. What's the implication? Well, when one is a slave, there is fear of what? Well, of everything. And that's how he describes us before Christ. 
Paul says for the believer, a slave is what you were, but not what you are. Fear is what you had. Freedom is what you now have. And how did that happen? Because of adoption. And that's what we see in verse 15 in the middle. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Now, I want to read you a couple things about uh, adoption. Here's what the uh, Shorter Catechism says. Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Now, I read that to you because that's a good definition of what, uh, what they thought when Paul was writing this. Let me read to you from one commentator about the term adoption. And, and it's, it's, it's not totally different than our understanding. There are many parallels. The term adoption may smack somewhat of an artificiality in our ears, but in the first century A.D., an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adopted father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. He was no whit inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature and might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily. So the bottom line is, when you're in Christ, if you're trusting in Christ alone for your eternal life, you're no longer a slave. You are no longer an orphan. Those both were our identities before Christ. In Christ, you are adopted into his family. And that means you're entitled to everything Jesus is entitled to. Well, Everything. That's what adoption means for us. There's a personal closeness with God, verse, the third part of verse 15. And by him, by the Holy Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. Who gets to call the, the, the Father, the King of the universe? Who gets to call him Daddy? Jesus does. Who else? All of us. All of us. Because we've been adopted into the family. He's saying here, there is a closeness now that can only be described by that term, Abba, Daddy. Now, once again, and I, I often point out the differences between Christianity and other world religions, this is absolutely unique, absolutely unique. You do not find this in other religions. In other religions, there is separation between God and man, and, and man is always on that razor's edge of not knowing whether he has done enough in order to get to paradise or to get rewards from his God because it's all about what, what they do to get to him. In Christianity, it's just the opposite. 
It's what Jesus did to get to us and, and to make us his brothers and sisters. That's what the Holy Spirit then testifies to us. Look at verse 16, and that's where our security is. The, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So the work of the Holy Spirit is not only to give us a new heart for salvation, but then to take up dwelling in our new heart, but also assure us that this Holy Spirit, and another way to put, say, Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. So when we talk about Christ living in me, that's, that's fine, that's good, it's theologically correct. Christ does live in me. How does he live in me? Well, it's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. That's who actually dwells within us because as we saw earlier in uh, the Apostles' Creed, where is Jesus? He's right where we need him to be. He is at the right hand of the Father praying for us. Remember? Interceding, advocating for us. And he sent his spirit to dwell in us. So look at our future hope then. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves uh, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we are adopted. We have that to look forward to when even our bodies are going to be redeemed. We have a glimpse, we, a taste, a foretaste right now of what it'll be like. But Paul's saying we have this to look forward to. So it's not just all about what's going on here. But let's talk about our on, ongoing comfort. Because some people say, well, okay, so this life's pretty miserable. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm ready for the next one. Well, sometimes this life can be miserable. But we need to understand that even in this life, because of the Holy Spirit, there is blessing, there is ongoing comfort. Here's what it says. The Spirit, verse 26, himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for saints according to the will of God. So here's, here's a question. When you've had difficult times, have you ever had a hard time knowing how to pray? It's okay to do this. And if you're honest, you're at least doing this inside. Because the only alternative to never having experienced that the only explanation is you just didn't pray during that time. If you, if you say, I've never experienced not knowing 
how to pray. It is difficult. Now, in, back in John, Jesus said in John 14, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And that's what he's talking about here, that, that helper. So verse 26, likewise, the, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought. So he uses this, this phrase, he helps us. And you might say, well, that, you know, I don't know anything about Greek, but that's probably just a, a simple translation, helps. That's got to be one little easy word. It's, it's actually a 17-letter double compound word in the original. Um, it's only used one other place in the New Testament. So what's it trying to express when it says helps us? Well, sometimes it'll be according to what we think we need. In other words, sometimes you're going to ask for something, and that's, that's what you need, and that's what he's going to give you. But sometimes when you pray in faith, you might be asking for the opposite of what you need. You might be asking for something and, and you are thoroughly convinced, God, this is what I need. But God, who knows everything, knows that's exactly the opposite of what would be best for you. I, I love this because here we see Paul was human and he struggled with prayer too. And you might say, well, if Paul didn't know what to pray, how are we supposed to know what to pray? I, I, I love how uh, Tim Keller puts it. He says, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows, and we can be confident of that. The reality is that sometimes it's not just that we, we ask for the wrong thing, but we may, may not have any words, or the words we have are the wrong words. And this passage says, the Holy Spirit deals with that on our behalf. Look what it says in the last part of 26. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Those groanings and, and different commentators have different thoughts. Is it the Holy Spirit groaning? Is it us groaning? And here's my take. I, I think it's really the answer is yes. Those groanings. Um, if you find yourself groaning because of suffering, and I have to tell you that I, I don't think a week goes by where I don't hear of something that somebody is facing and my, my initial response is, oh. Now, I'm not saying that's the, necessarily the biblical response. But, but you do that too. You know that feeling of being frustrated. If I hear cancer one more time, if I hear this one more time, 
and it, your heart sinks and you groan. Well, you know what? Jesus groaned too when he was here on this earth and he, he saw people suffering in a fallen world and sometimes he would just groan. He'd cry out. Now with Jesus, he knew that it's because of this that he was going to go to a cross and change it all. But he still had that compassion. So here's my take. When you groan like, you're not groaning by yourself. The Holy Spirit is groaning with you. But, but it's not just like him just going there, there. I'm with you. I feel your pain. That wouldn't do us much good. And that's where we see the Holy Spirit intercedes. He pleads our case. Now, we know that the Scripture, and we studied this uh, uh, several weeks ago, we know that Jesus is interceding. So here we add to that picture of the Son interceding and the Holy Spirit and both of them pleading our case. Two intercessors, yes. Isn't that good? Not uh, conflicting, but working together. One commentator says, one intercedes for, for us, the other intercedes within us. The Holy Spirit's pleading our case. So we don't know God's will, so we simply don't sometimes say anything to him. Paul says the Holy Spirit does this according to the will of God. Verse 27, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Holy Spirit doesn't have to wonder what the will of God is because he's exactly equal with the Father and the Son. It's his will. So Palmer, again, puts it this way. Between us praying here on earth and Jesus interceding in the heavens, it is secured through the intervention of the divine spirit. He takes the desires that are in the heart of Jesus Christ and works them into our hearts so that they become our desires. You see, it's working backwards. And so the spirit is working in our heart. And so with that being the case, with, the, with Jesus interceding for us, the Spirit interceding within us, there's no way your prayers won't work. Well, there is one way. If you refuse to pray. If you stop praying. As time goes on, we'll grow in Christ. And our heart will grow to be more in line with his will. One more thing. I use this word in my opening prayer. We've called the Holy Spirit the interceder and the helper. Don't forget what he is called by Jesus is the comforter. 
He's not just sitting beside us silently. He is the comforter who is dwelling within us, and he is actively pleading our case to Jesus, then the Father. And that's where the real comfort comes from. Let's pray. Lord, if we take nothing else from today, will you cause us to know that if we are trusting in Christ alone for our eternal life, that we're in good hands because we are securely in your hands and you and the precious Holy Spirit are pleading our case and so, so much, uh, so far from that causing us to be silent, may it give us incentive to pray all the more, knowing that we can't go wrong when we seek you. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.